Welcome to Supreme Myths. I am so happy today to have as my guest Professor Kermit Roosevelt, the David Berger Professor for the Administration of Justice at the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He's a graduate of Harvard and Yale. He clerked for Justice David Souter. He's written more articles, essays that you can possibly count. And his new book, The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story, is making all kinds of headlines and sounds just fascinating. Kermit, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's totally my pleasure. So let's begin with your book, and, and then we'll move to some current event topics after we get through that. The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. I guess my first question would be, why do you think we needed to reconstruct America's story? Well, because I think the story that we have, it's not working. I think it never worked as well as people thought it did. But I think now it's really counterproductive. So when I talk about America's story... I'm talking about the story that we tell ourselves to sort of explain who we are as a people and what our values are and where they come from and what we need to do to be good Americans and who we should look at as our heroes and who are the villains of our history. All of that. Um, there's a standard story that we tell ourselves that connects us to the founding. And what I try to do in the book is to show that first, this story is really not very accurate. But second, it's actually harmful. It's harmful to the goals that it's supposed to be promoting because we tell ourselves that we're committed to these values, equality, universal liberty. But the story that we tell sets up as our heroes, people who really didn't believe in those values. And it downgrades the people who did. It downgrades the people who are really responsible for those values entering our constitution. So let's start. So first of all, you said it's inaccurate. In what ways... You know, very broadly speaking, uh, is our history inaccurate of the founding? Well, the broad way to put it is we attribute to the founding values that are really reconstruction values. Now, this is not to say that no one in the founding believed in these things because they came from somewhere and they came from sort of sure. outsiders and dissenters who were there at the founding. But what I call Lincoln's equality so the idea that the government should treat everyone equally or that the government should treat everyone with equal concern and respect, that is not in the Declaration of Independence. Here's like a clear way of putting one of my big points. When the Declaration of Independence says all men are created equal, that's something totally different. That's about the state of nature. It's about Lockean social contract theory. It's basically a rejection of the idea of the divine right of kings. It's not at all what we think of as our modern value of equality. That comes later and it comes from outside. It comes from abolitionists who read the Declaration of Independence differently. So when we think about who states the American creed, it's not Thomas Jefferson. It's not these people in 1776. They're saying something very different. It gets reinterpreted. But you know, the president who's really fighting for that is Abraham Lincoln. Right. Let, let, let me it's drill not let, George Washington. Let me drill down on that for a minute. Uh, there's a professor um, at Ohio Northern, I know you know him, Scott Gerber, who, who and others, who, but Scott's, I think, the main proponent of this, who does claim that the Declaration of Independence is the great embodiment of all American values. And, and, and he, he even believes, by the way, I don't agree with any of this, but just to lay, 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 the, lay the floor for this, he believes Justice Thomas's jurisprudence is kind of you know, rooted in the Declaration of Independence, which I think is utter nonsense. But leaving that aside, um, when Jefferson wrote, it was Jefferson, right, who wrote those words, all men are created equal, what do you think was going, I, I have a very literal question. You, you're, you're an excellent historian. What do you think was going on in his head? What did he mean 
when he wrote those words? Well, I think it's it's pretty clear, and you know, the scholars agree on this, the people who study the Declaration yeah. and have written about it. Jefferson was, as he said, not trying to say anything novel, not trying to come up with ideas that had never been heard before. He was trying, he said, to put before mankind the common sense of the subject. And he's trying to show that the colonists are justified in declaring independence from Great Britain. That's the point of the Declaration. So what does he need to do that? He needs a theory about where legitimate political authority comes from and when it ceases to be legitimate, and then a demonstration that the facts of the colonists' case fit that description, right? George has, in fact, done the things that render him illegitimate. And that's what the Declaration is doing. And, you know, you can look at other contemporaneous documents like the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which go through this in more detail. What Jefferson does basically is he takes a lot of common ideas and compresses them. And, you know, if there's brilliance in the Declaration, I think it's his ability to compress philosophical ideas into very mm -hmm. short phrases. But that means that now, coming at it now and not coming at it from the 18th century political philosophy background that Jefferson had, we totally misunderstand what this meant to him and what it meant to his audience. That's just, so right. I, I, you know, to start with, he's got to rebut the divine right of kings. Right. And Locke spends his first treatise doing that. Right. And Jefferson, who follows Locke very closely, says all men are created equal, which means no one is chosen by God to rule by birth. Right. So I would like to think, and I, I hope that most people in 2022, although I have to say current events are unnerving me on this. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But I would like to think that everyone today agrees that slavery was America's original sin, that, you know, um, uh, it's reprehensible that slavery continued long after the, the, the Constitution was ratified. But isn't it also true that there couldn't have been a country without a compromise? I should rephrase that question. Is it true that there couldn't have been a country without that compromise? Oh, yeah. So I, I completely agree with that. I mean, that's my angle on that is, we have a pretty pro-slavery constitution in 1787. Right. Also, the Declaration of Independence is not inconsistent with slavery, and I'm happy to talk about that more. Please, no, do that now. It, it ends up being interpreted as pro-slavery. I don't think it's necessarily pro-slavery. Um, but, okay, so let me just answer your, yeah. your first question. First, the 1787 constitution is pretty pro-slavery, and that happens because the representatives of the southern states are really committed to slavery. And they keep saying, if you don't give us what we want, if we're not satisfied with the protections and recognition of slavery that we get, we're walking and there will be no union. There will be no United States. So this is, this is something that happens repeatedly through American history, right? You have people who are anti-slavery or maybe they're pro-equality somewhat later, sure. but really what they want is unity. They're like, we Americans have to come together. And they're negotiating with people who are less committed to unity, I guess, but in any case, very strongly want protection for slavery or want to resist equality. And when you compromise with those people, the unity side sacrifices equality. So we get unity, but we sacrifice equality. And it happens over and over again. The you Declaration is like that. I would say the 1787 Constitution is like that. Um, the Compromise of 1877 is like that. And then like Reagan's unity is also like that. We'll get to Reagan's unity in a little bit. Um, you said the Southern states felt really, really strongly about slavery. Of course, that's true. 
that's not a debatable proposition. I am reminded, though, um, I'm a musical theater buff in my spare time, and I am remember there's a there's a sh- there's a song in the musical 1776 sung um, that suggests very strongly that the Northerners who gathered to try to figure out what to do about breaking away from England, uh, they, you know, some of them didn't want slavery, but that Boston was a port, for example, that made huge profits off the slave trade. And there was a lot of hypocrisy going on in the northern states on that question. I honestly don't know enough about that to have an intelligent response to that. Is there some truth to that? Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I I think it's it's a mistake to assume that the North was anti-slavery. So in 1776, every state recognizes slavery. Right. Um, after independence, several states abolish slavery pretty quickly. Right. I mean, they do it gradually and they do it with compensation, which is an important point. Um, but yeah, there's anti-slavery sentiment in the North, but there's also pro-slavery sentiment. And going back to what I said about compromises. Yeah. In an earlier draft of the Declaration, it sort of looks like Jefferson is maybe trying to make a compromise between pro-slavery and anti-slavery people because he's got this passage that criticizes King George for introducing slavery to America and criticizes the Atlantic slave trade. And then he goes on and criticizes King George for inciting slave rebellions, right? inciting domestic insurrections. And what happens is the pro-slavery people object to the criticism of the Atlantic slave trade. So it gets taken out, but the complaint about domestic insurrection stays in. So it sort of starts out like maybe it's a compromise. It ends up tilting in the pro-slavery direction. Now, why did that initial passage get taken out? Jefferson in his letters or his diaries or something, Jefferson in his writings says it's taken out because North Carolina and Georgia object very strongly. And also some of our Northern brethren feel accused by this because they don't own so many enslaved people themselves, but they are considerable carriers yes, of slaves, he says. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, the musical is accurate on that point, which is which is kind of, it wasn't dramatic license. They make that point in the, in, in the musical. Anyway, um, so I ha- I'm trying to formulate a question that's going to sound, I'm afraid, a little bit dumb, but I, I really want to ask it. I'm just going to ask it, and if you don't want to answer it, don't. Was it worth it? Was the compromise worth it? I mean, it, it seems like if, if there's no compromise, there's no United States, at least at that time. I, I've always gone back and forth on this in my own head, not as an expert historian, but as someone who has studied some of the period. It feels like this country was found, and maybe this is the point of your book too, the country was founded partly on this pernicious, horrific, immoral principle. Maybe we should have waited 50 more years <laughs> before doing it. I don't know. Do you have a thought about that? Well, yeah. So, I mean, when you say the country was founded on this principle or when you say slavery is America's original sin, I kind of disagree with both of those things because I have a different belief about what America is and who we are as a nation. Because I believe that our America, modern America, comes into being with Reconstruction. Right. And it's not founding America and slavery is not our original sin. Redemption is our original sin. And it teaches a different lesson, which I think is a better lesson. What, what are the but, practical implications of that, Kermit? The practical implications of... That's to the entire world, that, starting tomorrow, agreed with you that America began really in 1868. What are the implications of that? Or 1860, or whatever you dated it from. Yeah. Um, well, tons of implications. <laughs> so we get, we get a different cast of, of heroes, right? We get 
Charles Sumner and Thaddeus Stevens and Hiram Revels and Robert Smalls and Harriet Tubman. Right. Instead of Madison, Hamilton, Jefferson, which right. I think is an improvement. Um, we get a story of our national origin as a war for liberty, right? A war for the liberty of others, a war against slavery, which we try to say is what the revolution is, but it's not. Right. Um, we get a national story where America is born in a war against a slaveholder's rebellion. Right. So, you know, the, the revolution is actually a slaveholder's rebellion. Slavery is legal in every state in 1776. And we're trying to say we're this nation's dedicated to equality, but our origin story is a slaveholder's rebellion against the national government. So now, you know, move forward and we're like, huh, who are the good guys? Who are the bad guys today? Who are the real Americans? Well, if you're looking back at the founding, white paramilitaries fighting the national government are <laughs> the good guys. That's the Sons of Liberty, right? That's the Minutemen. Right. So it's very easy for the January 6th insurrectionists to be saying 1776, right? 1776. When Joe Biden gives the speech in Philadelphia where he says you can't be pro-America and pro-insurrection, that's true, maybe, if you're thinking about Reconstruction, but it's not true if you're thinking about 1776 America. And it's not true if you're thinking about redemption. So look at redemption. You've got white paramilitaries fighting the national government again. It's the Klan. It's the White League. It's the Red Shirts. They're the bad guys. So now, here we are. It's January 6th. White paramilitaries are fighting the national government, right? The Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters. It matters a lot, I think, if we have a story that says those are the bad guys not those are the good guys. What went through my mind when you said that is I, 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 I agree with 100%. And I hope we don't need to be experts in American history to recognize, as you are telling it, to recognize that the January 6th insurrection was led by bad guys. <laughs> but maybe we do. Uh, maybe you're right. Maybe we do. Well, you know, I think it helps. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, what, what they're doing there is redemption. Right. Basically. They're right. saying we reject the outcome of democratic elections because we don't like the results. Right. And interestingly, what is the criteria of legitimacy for a government under the Declaration of Independence? Is it democracy? No, absolutely not. Declaration of Independence is not pro-democracy. The criteria of legitimacy for a government under the Declaration of Independence is it's formed by the consent of the governed and it protects the natural rights of insiders. So when you have people and this is redemption, it's also sort of January 6th, saying basically, we want to define our political community differently and say that some people are outsiders, that they're not real Americans, which the 14th Amendment with birthright citizenship is preventing us from doing. And we want a government that protects the right people and hurts the right people, right? hurts the people we want to hurt so that the undeserving others don't take our stuff. All of that is consistent with the Declaration of Independence. So, I mean, I, I really think it does matter if we have a deep understanding that's based on the Declaration of Independence, which is really kind of an exclusive individualist document, as I call it, or say the Gettysburg Address and Reconstruction, which is inclusive and equality focused so, and democratic. Right? The Gettysburg Address says government of the people, by the people, for the people. It's pro-democracy, which the Declaration clearly is not. Well, they didn't think government was by the people for I mean, I don't really think they thought that. What about the words, we the people in the Constitution? Are we, are we, are we, to, are we to, to take that to mean all white property males? Well, yeah, I mean, I think kind of. So when we say we the people of the United States, 
it then in the first draft goes on and lists all the states. So it's basically like we, the people of these separate individual states, right. it lists them all. And then the committee on detail takes that out because it's sort of clunky. And what if they don't all ratify, then it's embarrassing. Um, so it does seem to me to be saying the states set their political communities and then the state's political communities come together and form the people of the United States. But obviously, like the states are enslaving some people, right. they're excluding some people. Those people are not included in We the People because they're not part of the state political communities. Uh, on that issue, this may take us a little bit afield for a second. I'll bring us back in a few minutes. Um, so, you know, in, in, in the landmark case, and, and some non-lawyers listen to this, so we need to be cognizant of that. Um, uh, McCulloch versus Maryland, which is the case that upheld the National Bank, one of the most important, I think, passages of that opinion is that the Constitution comes from the people, not the states, according to the federal, the, the nationalist John Marshall. Justice Thomas wrote for three other conservative justices in his dissent in the term limits case. That he actually, and, and, and until I read, until term limits case came out in the 90s, I thought everybody agreed that Marshall was right, that the Constitution comes from the people, not the states. But then Thomas writes this, this what I call screed for three others, where he says, Mar he's the, the, the audacity to say Marshall was wrong, that in fact the Constitution does come from the states, not from the people. And he, he cites the evidence that, of course, the states voted to ratify it, not individual people. And I think the stakes of that debate are very, very high. What you're saying, I think, is that maybe Marshall was maybe Marshall was wrong, and Thomas is right as an original matter. Well, so as an original matter, what I have come to believe is there's no right answer okay. on a lot of these questions. Fair, you know, people people had different views, right. and then they argued for them, and different views rose and fell in popularity, and. There were views, there was a, a brief period of federalist constitutionalism that I think law professors are now rediscovering, where lots of people believe things that now seem obviously wrong <laughs> to me. And this is what sort of shook my confidence in the idea that there was a right answer at the beginning that people understood, and now we've sort of lost it. There never was a right answer, I think. For a while, there was a like a dominant view that the preamble of the Constitution actually gives Congress a general legislative power. Right which I had always taught my students was clearly mistaken. But that was like the dominant view for a while. So I just don't think that there is a right answer to that. Um, if I had to say the right answer, if I had to pick one based on the way that the document is written and what I understand of people's views at the time, I think Marshall is probably not right, to be honest. I mean, I, I think that the Constitution is much more of a league between states and much less of a creation of a nation than we think. So, you know, hey, look, the phrase United States is plural. And when we, the people of the United States, ratify the Constitution, it doesn't bind people in non-ratifying non states. Right. So, I mean, if it's a single national people, it's funny that the single national people don't all get the Constitution when, you know, a majority of the people, or even nine states, right? Even if nine states ratify, why doesn't it come into being among all of the United States people? Right. And, and not only that, but there is no national referendum. We don't vote for the president as a, as a, as a whole of the people. Uh, all of that scares me a lot, Kermit. I can't tell you. I just, just emotionally, that, all of that scares well, me. But, sure. Right. So, I mean, here's the thing about my book in general. 
when I look at the founding, what I say about it is probably not what you would like to hear. Because <laughs> I'm going to say like the Confederates are right about a lot of things. Yeah. Um, and then my way around that is to be like, and we overthrew that political regime and got rid of it and we're a different country. Right. But in terms of like the legality of secession or whose side is the 1787 constitution on in the civil war, or, you know, most obviously whose side is the declaration of independence on, I feel like the South has a pretty good case there. Um, which does not mean that we were wrong to conquer them and overthrow their government. I think that was right. But if you're looking at the legality and, you know, which side founding America is more closely connected to, I think founding America is very much like the Confederacy. In that sense, the war of northern aggression, which is a phrase, I, I was raised in New York, but I've been in the South most of my adult life, all, almost all my adult life. You, don't, you may not have an issue with that phrase like many people do. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. really. So, I mean, I don't like to talk about the North. Right. I believe it's the United States and maybe the traitors or okay. maybe the Confederate states, if okay. you think secession is legitimate. But Lincoln's side is the United States. But I have no problem in saying there was a rebellion. I mean, it's not even necessarily a rebellion because it's a secessionist movement. They're not trying to take over. Right. They're not trying to overthrow the United States government. Right. Um, but a bunch of states decide to leave according to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, and then we conquered them, right? We're like, you're not going to leave. And furthermore, we're going to remake your society against your will. Um, and we did that because we were building a new nation that was based on justice and democracy. So, and I think we should own that. So, well, that's so interesting um, because I, I don't want to get in trouble here, so I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this. Uh, I, I've done a number of different radio shows where I've suggested the following, and every time I've done it, the feedback has been that I'm right. And I'm going to try to express this in a, in a way that won't, that won't get me in trouble. My feeling about many Southerners is that there is something about Southern culture, maybe separate from racism and slavery, maybe, that they feel was destroyed by the North during the Civil War. And that gets all mixed up and messed up emotionally, even in 2022, with slavery and segregation, but mostly slavery, um, and that emotionally, a lot of Southerners who clearly do not believe in slavery or segregation or racism still feel that this was a takeover of their culture and still harbor resentment from that. And then that feeling gets harnessed by racists and bigots. And you stir all that up and we have a real problem. Does any of that make sense? Does that ring true to you at all? Yeah, sure. That makes sense to me. I mean, I, I fully believe that there are people who have an attachment to Southern culture that is not based on racism or a desire right. for slavery. And they right. feel that in the Civil War, that culture was destroyed. I think they're probably wrong in that I don't think it's separable from slavery because slavery was the foundation right. of Southern culture, right? You can't you can't talk about the noble South having a culture that's independent from slavery. Right. Um, because I think it, it all relied on slavery. But I think you can say 
I like the idea of this independent culture, right? Slavery is not the part of it that I like. I like the idea that we had a different culture and then the Yankees came and wrecked it. Um, fair. They did. Right. You know, I think it was justified. Right. Uh, one more but, thing yeah. about Jefferson before we, we move on in time to the re to Reconstruction. Uh, a question about Jefferson, then, then one more personal question, then we move on. So, um, you know, I think Jefferson often wrote about the uh, desirability of local decision making. And, and how people are governed better by people they can touch and see and feel on a local basis. And was he, I think he was, and one of the reasons he wanted a new constitution every 18 years or something, whatever he said, um, that's wrapped up in that as well. Um, we shouldn't be governed by people who lived a long time ago. We should be governed by people today, both temporally and geographically. I'm not sure he was wrong. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts about that? Um, I'm also not sure he was wrong. I think, right. you know, for a lot of issues, local decision-making is probably better. And, you know, one of the things I think we're seeing in the United States today is that when you have a large and diverse country trying to have a single government making policy for the whole country can be pretty difficult. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it may be that in 2022, 50 states and 3,000 miles, not counting Alaska and Hawaii, uh, is just too much for a central government. That's just an aside. Um, you said a few minutes ago that uh, you're telling people things they don't want to hear. As someone who has been doing that for a very long time, um, starting starting around 2010 when I started saying the Supreme Court's not a court, um, I can tell you that it takes a fairly harmful personal toll. I mean, I told the truth as I saw it and even progressive friends and leftist friends, you know, everybody was mad at me for making this. Less so today, much than they were 10 years ago. Um, are, are you, uh, how's, how, has that affected you at all? And are you prepared for how mad you're going to make a lot of people? Um, yeah, I, I mean, actually, the reaction that I've gotten has generally been pretty positive. I'm glad. Because I'm saying things that people don't want to hear, I guess, but I don't stop there, right? So I'm trying to tear down our standard story, but then I'm trying to replace it with a better story. Right. And part of the whole motive for this book was the sense that there are these two contradictory impulses in America today, and we have no way of reconciling them. And one is we want to tell the truth about the past. We want to be honest about what has happened in American history and what Americans have done to other Americans. And then the other is we want to be patriotic and we want to tell ourselves a story of an America that we can believe in and be proud of and have faith in. And I feel like both of those are legitimate, valuable impulses because, yeah, of course we should be honest. But I mean, are we going to tell a history where like you should hate America because we're a terrible nation? <laughs> no, that's crazy. Right. No, no country does that. Right. So the question is, how can you tell a story of America that's honest and that also shows you a nation you can have faith in? And my answer is, we're Reconstruction America. So there are bad things about the founding, and we have to be honest about that. But then founding America was basically overthrown and destroyed. And we are Reconstruction America, and we can identify with Reconstruction America because it's much better. And we can actually be proud of that, you know, and we were our country was born in a war to end slavery. 
So one pushback I might give you on this idea, uh, two points. So however great Reconstruction was, and it was certainly by any metric, you know, a more egalitarian, noble movement and, and idea than was the founding, not for women so much still, right? That's one point I want to make. And then, uh, so I want your reaction to that. And then the second point question, slash question is I – you know, I believe recon- I believe the um, what Reconstruction tried to fix, really, of course, we got rid of slavery per se, but really wasn't fixed under the law until 1964. And I think 1964 America is actually the more ideal. I'm talking about the Civil Rights Act 1964, the Voting Rights Act 1965. By then, women had the right to vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So how do you respond to those two things? Um, yeah, so absolutely, Reconstruction is not perfect, and leaving out women is maybe the biggest flaw of right. Reconstruction. But Reconstruction is pro-democracy, and once you're pro-democracy, which founding America really is not, I right. mean, if you look at the Constitution, if you look at the 1787 Constitution, you'd be surprised, well, not you, but <laughs> many people would be surprised at how undemocratic it is. Yeah. So there's no federal constitutional right to vote, right? right. Which we've sort of grappled with more recently. Um, it's basically as democratic as the states want it to be. So it really doesn't do a whole lot in terms of supervising the states. You do have the Republican form of government clause, but really not that democratic. And Reconstruction is. So you got the Gettysburg Address, of course, and then you've got like the 15th Amendment. So we've got this push towards democracy. And once you start thinking that democracy is what legitimates your government, then I think you've incorporated an ideal with this expansive force that's going to include more and more people, which is kind of the story that we like to tell about how we the people has grown to include more and more people. Um, So I do think you've got a line from Reconstruction to the 19th Amendment and the more inclusive equal protection decisions of the Supreme Court and so on. Uh, and you don't have that line from the declaration to those decisions. Certainly, certainly not. When I, when I sometimes write about originalism, I suggest that all countries need symbols or an origin story or, or some kind of patriotic tale to um, justify itself. And I don't have a problem with references or nods to the founding is what I used to say, I may not anymore, but I used to say nods to the fat based on your book, but nods to the founding are important. We shouldn't mistake that though for a tool judges should use to decide public policy questions today. I take it that you would love it if we just really just said that the founding is not us and our nods would be to reconstruction era, era symbols, not founding era symbols. Is that a fair characterization? Yes. What's, so we would rely a lot less on the Federalist Papers. Right. <laughs> right. So is the, Gettys- is, is the Gettysburg Address the preeminent symbol you would rely on? I would replace the Declaration of Independence with the Gettysburg Address. And what do you find yes. most um, substantial in that address that could help us with our problems today? Well, so I think it shows a commitment to democracy. And it shows a commitment to the expansion of liberty, this idea of universal liberty. So new birth of freedom. I mean, you have to read a bit into it and know something about the history that comes after. But I think it has democracy and universal rights in it. Um, Now, there's a whole separate question about where those come from, because Lincoln does say that he's 
relying on the declaration. He always said that. Right. Um, but however sincere he may have been, and it's an interesting parallel to Martin Luther King, who does the same thing in the I Have a Dream speech, but I think is clearly not sincere. Right. Um, however sincere Lincoln may have been, I think he was just mistaken about right. that. So, so forgive me for this, Kermit. This is going to be an incredibly unfair question, but I, I'll explain why I'm asking it. I was, on a, I was a guest on a podcast yesterday, and the main theme of this podcast, which I said several times was above my salary grade, was, was Martin Luther King correct that the arc of the universe tends towards justice? Now, you're someone, um, I don't consider myself an historian. I am certainly... Uh, knowledgeable about our founding era and Reconstruction. I'm not an historian. You're much more of an historian. But I'm just curious. I'm going to ask you the question I was asked. Do, do you think Martin Luther King was right that the arc of the universe tended towards justice? Um, yes, I do. But I think that it's a complicated question. And you have to understand how it happens. So there's a bad way to take that, which is the way that I think Americans often do, which is like America has always been committed to equality and slavery is this deviant institution. Gosh, how did that get there? And segregation is contrary to American values. And gosh, how did that happen? And we naturally progress towards equality and it happens sort of inevitably. And that I think is an idea that the standard story gives us but it's very dangerous and harmful to the progress of equality. And Martin Luther King saw that, right? That's what his letter from the Birmingham jail about white moderates right. is about, right? People who are like, progress is inevitable. You should be civil, right? Because that's, that's the way that that argument gets deployed. So I do think if you look at human history or American history, we get better. But when do we get better? We get better basically when we realize that the system we're working within is not going to deliver justice. It's not going to de deliver the results that we need. And then we have kind of a radical break. And it's when the compromises break down and people have to stand up for what they believe in that we actually move forward. Sort That's of fascinating. In ordinary times, we do not move forward. In ordinary times, we do not make progress on racial equality. One of the, one of so the things. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, there's a really interesting book called The Unsteady March mm -hmm. that I read, which is basically about this. It's like how does progress towards racial equality happen, and when does it happen? And the thesis of that book is it happens when there's a war that's fought for sort of democratic ideals and ideals of equality, and it requires the mobilization of black men in the army. And there's a domestic movement that's willing to say, look, we're fighting for these ideals. You need to honor them here in the U.S. and you're not doing it. And that apart from that confluence of factors, we tend to go backwards, actually. So two points. One, the only answer I gave to this question, because you're, this is not my area of expertise, was my intuition is that we go forward and back, forward and back, forward and back. And in that give and take, hopefully we end up more forward than back. I'm assuming that's, you agree with that sentiment. Yeah, we do go forward and back. We go yeah. forward quickly, I think, and back more slowly usually. I mean, sometimes we go back quickly, like redemption. Right. right. But I think we have like progress forward and then there's a fallback and there's right. a backlash. And mostly what I was saying was during ordinary placid times when the nation is calm, we're not actually moving forward. Right. And, and, I, and I think the other thing you said triggered in me the, the, the off-stated belief by many historians, I think, that the Brown, that Brown versus Board of Education – 
while viewed as a case wrapped up in domestic politics, domestic uh, troubles, uh, domestic issues, was actually, in large part, a reflection of the court speaking on behalf of America to Russia, because we were criticizing them and Stalin, of course, for all kinds of human rights abuses. And their response in 1951 was, you're accusing us of human rights abuses? Have you seen your southern states? I think that's a really strong narrative. Do you you agree with that? Yeah, I absolutely do agree with that. Yeah. And and that puts Brown in a very different perspective. Going back to Reconstruction. So we have the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. And I've had um, Adam Winkler on this podcast, um, and I've had Ken Greenfield on this podcast, and a few others, who tell the story of how the Reconstruction Amendments went from really designed to, you know, eventually give the enslaved, newly freed enslaved people some form of equality in America, and the Supreme Court within 30 years turned that into equality or superiority for railroads and big business and left the newly freed enslaved people behind. I'm assuming you don't disagree with that take. Um, Nope, I I agree with that take. And how important, so what is that, how does that affect your thesis and what does that tell us about Reconstruction that, that, and was it, and, and, more, and for this purpose, this podcast is called Supreme Ifs. What does that tell us about the Supreme Court? Well, it tells us that historically the Supreme Court has not been a force for progress. Yeah. So if you look at the broad sweep of American history and you ask, what is the Supreme Court doing? Is it advancing equality or is it resisting? It generally resists. Yeah. So the Warren Court is an aberration. I think people know that now. There was a time like the 80s and 90s when people were sort of struggling to come to that realization. But I think that people understand now the Supreme Court tends to be small C conservative um, because it's going to lag the other branches. And then right now it's also just very sort of large C. Would I say large C? (laughs) It's very ideologically conservative because it's been captured by a minority party. Right. Right. Um, when I came to Georgia State in 1991, I'm that old, uh, and started teaching in 91, really for that entire decade, I tried to get my colleagues and friends to see that over time the Supreme Court has been exactly what we'd expect elite lawyers who are looking backwards to be. I, I have to mention Richard Posner once a podcast. It's kind of an unwritten rule of this podcast. And, and, and he, he and I always talked about this. The job of courts is to look backwards. Not He didn't view his role that way, but that's how American courts view it. Um, in any event, I tried to convince my, coll- my liberal colleagues and friends that the Warren Court was a complete aberration. But back in the 90s, it wasn't that old. And, and, and I just never, I, I made no headway. I would, no one liked it. It's telling people things they don't want to hear. And, and then somewhere around 2015, after Shelby County, it all changed. And, and people started accepting my historical account of the court. But you just said something that, makes, that I'm very interested by. Um, do you think it is common ground today, even among progressives, that over time, because all of American history's history, big picture, the Supreme Court has been much more a force against progress, racial civil rights progress, than for racial gender civil rights progress. Um, I think among law professors, yeah, constitutional law professors, legal historians, um, probably not so much the general public, but... Right, right. um, 
So what do we do if the what do we do if that period of time from 1875 to 19 to 1964 really where on civil rights issues we didn't make a whole lot of progress. Uh, what do we do with that period of time? Yes. I mean, I mean, you're saying the founding is 1860. The real founding of this country, of this country's ideas and principles, should be located in Reconstruction, not the founding. Yet, segregation under right. law continued from 1868 to at least 1964. But every time I say that on the radio, I get phone calls from people living in South Carolina and Georgia and North Carolina who said in, in, in 1988, my town was still completely segregated. You know, not, I'm sorry, 1968. Yeah. My town was still completely segregated. But at least from 1865 to 1964, there wasn't a whole lot of progress. No, so that's that's redemption, right? In the aftermath of redemption and, and Jim Crow. And one of the things that I like about the story that I'm trying to tell is it's structurally almost an exact parallel huh. of the standard story. So instead of the Declaration of Independence, you've got the Gettysburg Address. Instead of the Revolution, you've got the Civil War. Instead of the 1787 Constitution, you've got the Reconstruction Constitution. And instead of the original sin of slavery, which is this practice that's inconsistent with our founding ideals. No, I'm saying it's not. But you've got redemption, which is a practice that is inconsistent with our founding ideals. And it really is, right? So everything in my better story is actually true. I think, in a way that much of what we say about the founding and the revolution and the 1787 constitution is not true. But so we understand this as a failure to live up to our ideals. And we ask, how did it happen? And the answer is that we prioritized white unity. We prioritized white unity with the Compromise of 1877. And we thought that it was better to have a lack of tension, you know, and a, a lack of conflict among whites. And we managed to get that by reinstalling racial hierarchy. I think you should explain what the Compromise of 1877 is for the audience. So the election of 1876 is disputed and unclear. And in the end, it's settled by a commission and there's a sort of backroom deal going on. And the result ultimately is that the Republican candidate, Rutherford B. Hayes, is going to be recognized as president. But there's an understanding that also the federal troops who are still propping up reconstruction integrated governments in the south are going to end their supervision of the south and the predictable consequence of that is these governments get overthrown by as i said like the white paramilitaries the white league one of the things that i find that even law professor audiences don't know as much as i think we should much less the general public is that Mississippi, for example, in the 1890s, blacks voted at a huge rate. I mean, there wasn't really a serious problem with blacks voting in 1885, 1891, Mississippi. By 1910, virtually no blacks voted in Mississippi. And I think that story is relatively the same throughout the South. And I'm assuming that's a direct byproduct of the compromise you're just talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, the the basic idea is we let white supremacy recapture the South. Right. Um, And yes, so then like you get denial of equal protection rights as we now understand them and you get denial of the right to vote. Right. That's so interesting. Um, So I guess, I mean, anybody listening to this and who knows my work is and my podcast is going to ask this next question. We want me to ask this next question. Like it or not, and I don't, and I don't think you do either, 
um, this whole alleged move towards originalism by the Supreme Court, which, you know, people know my views on that. It's a complete fraud and a hoax anyway. But taking it seriously for the moment, what implications does your uh, narrative have for originalism as a method of constitutional interpretation? Or is that a totally separate issue that we shouldn't even bring into the discussion? Well, I have a lot to say about originalism, I guess. <laughs> and it's, it's not a separate issue. Yeah. Um, it it does suggest, as I said before, that we should pay less attention to the Federalist Papers. Yes. And in particular, we should pay less attention to the Federalist Papers when we're talking about the permissible scope of federal authority or the balance of power between the federal government and the states. Because in Federalist 46, Madison basically describes the Civil War and tells you, don't worry, the South will win. <laughs> right? He's saying, what would happen if the federal government started interfering with the ways that states were doing things? Well, it would be just like the revolution. And right. it is just like the revolution. Right. It's like the states would take up arms. They would join together 13 against one. And it is 13 against one in the Civil War, 13 states against the national government. But he's saying, don't worry, the states would win. Um, so you can't look at that as a guide to understanding modern federal state relations. And similarly, I think so in the Affordable Care Act case is a place that this comes up. John Roberts, Chief Justice John Roberts, is talking about the appropriate balance of power between the federal government and the states. And he's like, wow, look at this massive federal overreach. This is not the nation that our founders dreamed of. And maybe that's true if you're thinking about the founders of 1787 and the Constitution that they drafted. But if you're thinking about Reconstruction, how did we get the 14th Amendment? We got the 14th Amendment. So like it's drafted by Congress. It's sent out to the states. It's rejected. We get the 14th Amendment because Congress then annihilates 10 former Confederate states, dissolves their governments, puts them under military control, and makes new states that are willing to ratify the 14th Amendment. And this is a part of our history that I think is taught terribly yeah. because no one seems to understand this, right? The conventional view is like, oh, the 14th Amendment, it's an ordinary Article 5 Amendment, right? But that's sort of clearly not true. And then even among people who know the history, the view seems to be Congress coerced the former Confederate states into ratifying the 14th Amendment. But I think if you look at the history, that's not what happened. Because if you look at the legislatures, the state legislatures that ratified the 13th Amendment, they're white Democrats. The state legislatures that ratified the 14th Amendment are very different. They're integrated Republican legislatures. And that's because Congress wiped out these states and then it said, draft new constitutions, and the formerly enslaved can be delegates to these constitutional conventions and can vote for delegates, and former Confederates can't. So you've got a new political community imposed from above. And this is why this is so contrary to the Declaration of Independence. It's not consent of the governed. It's a political community defined from above. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I do think we, we, I know I don't do a good job teaching that in my Common Law 2 class. I, I don't know many law professors who teach it that way. And uh, I, I think that that is really fascinating. So if uh, we're, we're getting close to the end, I have a couple of contemporary questions for you. So before we, before we leave your book, um, if there's one major uh, uh, soundbite takeaway 
that you want people to really understand. And by the way, everybody should read this book. Once again, The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. Whether you end up agreeing or disagreeing isn't the point. I think one should read this book because you've said something I find truly original and smart, and that is really hard to do in, 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 any, in any academic discipline. But if there's Thanks. one soundbite takeaway that you, know, you could run on CNN, what would it be? It would be, we are a better country than you think because we are not the country you think. Right. Because, and we're not the country you think because you have our origin, you have our birth incorrectly. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. All right, let's, let's, uh, that, that's a fascinating conversation. Uh, I, we're doing this on Wednesday after the Monday arguments in the affirmative action cases. And I want to ask you one, just one question about those cases for now, anyway. Um, in, in both Dobbs and Bruin last term in the abortion and gun cases, the court said preposterously and erroneously, but nevertheless said that constitutional law is all about his, historical recreation, more or less, that public policy shouldn't come into play. Of course, it, it was inconsistent with that in the two religion cases, but leaving from last term, but leaving that aside, at the oral argument on Monday, uh, the, heart, the UNC case lasted almost three hours. And not one conservative asked the question about original meaning. And then when we came back for the Harvard case, I think they saw the social media uproar about that. So Thomas mumbled something about originalism at the beginning, and maybe Gorsuch mumbled something later. And Barrett said, but, but they, they, it was obvious they didn't care. It was obvious to me they don't care what the original meaning was of the 14th Amendment when it comes to affirmative action. But I'm asking you, what is the original meaning of the 14th Amendment when it comes to affirmative action? Well, you know, as I said about the question of whether there's a single national sovereign or whether right. it's the discrete states, I think probably this was contested and there wasn't necessarily agreement on it. Right. And, you know, I, I did used to think you could dig through the historical materials and you would find the right answer. And I just kind of no longer believe that there is a single right answer there. But I do think that it was pretty commonly understood that what was being prohibited was discrimination. Mm -hmm. that was arbitrary or oppressive or unjustified right. and discrimination against black people was understood to be a paradigm example of right. that. That's sort of the heart of yep. what they were aiming at, you know, denying black people the right to make contracts, things right. like that, or to testify. Um, but it's certainly not colorblindness. It's right. not this idea that all racial classifications are the same or equally suspect because it's not about classification. It's about oppression. And when they use Justice Harlan's dissenting in Plessy and his colorblind sentence there, um, if you were a lawyer advocating that that sentence doesn't mean anything close to what the conservatives have said that it means, how would you how would you place him historically in that decision historically? I would say the word colorblind did not mean then what we take it to mean now. And you can see that if you look immediately before, yes. he says there is no caste here, right? right? So he's concerned about hierarchy. And right. immediately after, he says the Constitution doesn't know or tolerate classes among citizens. He's talking about hierarchy. Right. Classifications are totally different. Right. Yeah, I, we, you and I agree on that 100%. Uh, Come I've long been a fan of your work. And, and I've and you've written novels, and you are a very well-rounded law professor, as far as law professors go. Um, and I and I and I and I like your this basic social commentary. So I want to take this opportunity to ask you a question that's not relevant. Well, maybe it is relevant to your book, but it's more uh, a current events question. Marjorie Taylor Greene, a representative from Georgia, 
recently said, and I quote, Democrats are trying to kill Republicans. And she wasn't speaking metaphorically. I mean, uh, she was speaking erroneously, but she wasn't speaking metaphorically. She went on to explain what she meant. She meant it literally, that Democrats are trying to kill Republicans. All of the absurd conspiracy theories about Nancy Pelosi's husband being attacked. Um, I, saw, I, would, I just saw a clip of Glenn, Glenn Greenwald and Tucker Carlson chuckling about the idea that we're not taking these conspiracy theories seriously. I just read a thing today that the Republican Party is going to do really well in the midterms. Nobody knows, but that's what I read this morning. How worried are you about the United States of America? Oh, I'm very worried. Yeah. I'm very worried. I mean, I, I think so there are sort of cycles through American history, and you can call them cycles of reconstruction and redemption, I think. And we get the original reconstruction in the 1860s and 1870s. It's followed by redemption, which is a terrible period and lasts for quite a long time. Um, and then you get the second reconstruction with the civil rights movement. And I think what follows is the second redemption, starting with the Reagan revolution in the 1980s. And I think we're seeing that there was resistance to it and it hasn't reinstated the ideology of the founding, which is basically the ideology of the Confederacy to the extent that some people wanted. And, you know, look, we had Obama for eight years, but I think this is a struggle that's still going on. And minoritarian capture of the federal government happened in 2016, and they're trying to do it again. And if they can do it, they're going to lock themselves in. And, you know, you've got state legislatures that are gerrymandered, and we're going to have minority control of the whole country effectively, and it's going to be very hard to undo. The person so running, the I'm per very worried. The person running for governor of Wisconsin said, once I'm elected, there will never again be a Democrat governor of this state. That's what he said a couple of days ago. He said locked in. So it made me, it made me, you know, it, it kind of made yeah. me think of that. Last question. Um, how much do you think, if any, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, but based on what you said, I'm, I don't think I am, is Ronald Reagan and his movement and Newt Gingrich and his movement responsible for what I'll just call the Trump disaster and nightmare that we're all living through right now? Well, I think there's a lot more similarity between Reagan and Trump than many people recognize or admit. So Make America Great Again is actually a Reagan campaign slogan. Yep. And Reagan is doing the same kind of thing um, of one sort of looking back to this mythic past, you know, when was America great? What was that moment? Why was it great then? doesn't really get examined. Um, and he's got the same kind of rhetoric about undeserving others cutting in line for the American dream, which is really what motivates the Trump voters. It's the sense that they're losing their place in America to people who aren't real Americans. So Reagan is very much, I think, a forerunner there. Um, he's got a sunnier presentation. Like it's morning <laughs> yeah. in America. And then Hillary Clinton sort of famously said, the Republicans have gone from morning in America to midnight in America right. with Trump, because Trump is putting it out there in like American carnage, dark, scary tones, but it's basically the same vision. And the solution is also the same thing. It's like, um, we're going to make the government protect the people it's supposed to protect and not the people who aren't real Americans. Yeah. I, I, there's something, I, I'm old enough to have lived through Reagan as an adult. And um, I think one difference that is not making a difference, I don't think, uh, sadly, I wish it did, 
is that I, I, I could go on forever about how much damage, in my opinion, Ronald Reagan did to this country. But one of the things that, that is, I think, pretty obvious, he does seem like a decent man. And he might well have been. I, I don't know this for a fact. But I, my, my guess is that he was a decent man. I think his policies were horrific. But my guess is underneath all of that was a man of decency, a reasonable decency. We all have our flaws. Trump is so obviously not a decent man. And even his supporters think that. And I've talked to so many evangelicals who say, well, yeah, of course, he's, he's the worst, but we love his policies. So we're going to. That difference should have made a difference, but didn't. Do you have a theory yeah. about that? And then I'll let you go. Well, I think it, you know, it, it shows the impact of partisan polarization. Okay. Basically, because, you know, a confession for me. Someone would have to have some pretty dramatic personal flaws to make me vote for a Republican rather than a Democrat, because right. I do understand this as a contest between two political parties for control of the country. Right. And, you know, if I'm voting for a senator, uh, party affiliation is super important to me. Right. And personal qualities take a back seat. Right. Well, I think that that thought is shared by 72 million Americans, give or take. <laughs> Who voted for Trump last time? And uh, that, scared, that may scare me more than anything, I think. Um, and, you know, maybe James Madison and others saw that. That's why they didn't want political parties. It all ha that change happened so quickly. But a lot of Oh, people yeah. No, political parties are, are a disaster in terms of how they interact with the Constitution. And the <laughs> right. Supreme Court is an example of that. Yeah. Like, this is why our Supreme Court nomination confirmation process is so broken. Right. Kermit, thank you so much. This has been just wonderful. Once again, the book is The Nation That Never Was, Reconstructing America's Story. Go out there and read this. If nothing else, you'll get smarter and more understanding of what our country is really about. And I have to say, I think you're convincing me. I'd rather our country be about 1868 than 1776 or 1787 by a wide margin. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.